0: This is Alex Granados, news reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today, we're talking with Layla Bell, director of research and data for NC Child, and we're going to be talking about the uh, recently recently released 2017 Kids Count Profile. Layla, thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you for inviting us, Alex.
0: Um, so, I guess for those who aren't familiar with it, can you just give her a little, give them a little primer on what the Kids Count Profile is?
1: The Kids Count Data Book is an annual report that provides um, comparable state-level rankings on child well-being. It looks at 16 indicators in four different categories, which include economic well-being, health, education, family, and community, and is a really good way for us to evaluate and figure out how North Carolina children are faring relative to how kids are doing across the country.
0: Okay, and I guess the obvious follow-up question is, how are North Carolina children faring?
1: Well, the data book shows that we've made some significant progress in some key areas, but overall our state ranking is really being limited by widespread financial insecurity. So North Carolina ranks 33rd in the country for child well-being, which obviously puts us in the bottom half of states, which is not where we want to be for our children.
0: And um, have we gone up or down in comparison to uh, past years?
1: When we look at the individual measures, we see that some indicators have improved, others have stayed the same, um, and we've lost ground in some pretty critical areas is what the report is showing us this year.
0: What about in the uh, overall ranking?
1: Well, the challenge is we're not comparing the overall ranking this year to previous years. Um, there have been some slight changes in the methodology. What we can say is this is around where North Carolina typically ranks in the falls in the data book rankings, which means that more work really needs to be done to make sure that we're improving circumstances for kids in North Carolina.
0: And I think that uh, you mentioned that one of the kind of overarching categories here is education. And I think in in education, we are around 22nd in the nation. Is that right?
1: That's right. And that is the best performance in the four different categories that the data book provides. We rank 22nd in the nation, which puts us in the top half of all states in the country. And that is uh, encouraging for us. Um, There are two indicators where we see that North Carolina has done better. So more of our students are reading on grade level than they were um, during the benchmark year. And we're also seeing that fewer of our kids are dropping out of high school, both of which, again, are really encouraging progress.
0: And the benchmark year would be 2009, correct?
1: For the fourth grade reading proficiency, and it's slightly different for the high school graduation data but what we are seeing is 14 percent of our high school students are not completing high school on time which is down from 22 percent in the 2010-11 academic year.
0: And and while you, you know you mentioned um, fourth grade reading, um, while we are doing better I think if some people saw the percentage they would still be alarmed you know fourth graders not proficient in reading, 62 uh, percent in uh in 2015, in North Carolina, 65% in the nation. So we're almost aware, I guess the nation is, but I don't think most people would think either of those percentages are very good.
1: Right. We're doing slightly better than the national average, but we are not doing nearly as well as we would like for our children. And we know that that is a key measure. So reading proficiency at the end of third grade and their fourth grade scores is the difference when children move or transition from beginning to learn how to read to starting to use that reading and applying that reading to master other subjects. So if a kid is falling behind on reading proficiency at the end of fourth grade, We know that that means that they are really set up for a number of academic roadblocks and barriers as they start to move into more complex subjects and and concepts in their academic career.
0: And that would even extend to math. I mean, most people think about math as being, you know, facts and figures, but there's a lot of reading involved in it. Um, And Can you talk, talk a little bit about the category on here for eighth graders not proficient in math?
1: So we are seeing 67% of our 8th grade students are not scoring proficient in their math, um, which is again right around where we are in terms of the national average. And you're exactly right. We know that not only math, um, logic and reasoning is a subject that builds and is cumulative. It goes from more simple to more advanced concepts. But throughout that process, students really need to be able to lean on their reading comprehension skills. And so again, that reading benchmark is a significant one and one where we need to focus attention. Um, We know that there's a statewide effort to improve reading proficiency for our third-grade students, um, our pathways to grade-level reading. Um, We're encouraged by the work that is happening there to not only identify measures of success that tell us how our kids are doing on that pathway towards reading proficiency, but really to work together across systems to address all of the supports that need to be in place for kids to be reading on grade level. Because reading proficiency doesn't start at the beginning of the third grade school year. It doesn't even start at the beginning of the first day of kindergarten. It begins in children's homes with parents being able to have conversations with kids. It begins in those early learning classrooms where kids are being exposed to letters and shapes and numbers, all of which really helps support and build a strong foundation for those early reading skills.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about early childhood education. There's a category on here for young children not in school. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: So 57% of our young children, which refer to our 3 and 4-year-olds, are not enrolled in some kind of an early learning opportunity or classroom. That's actually worse than the national average, and that's a significant concern for us as a state because what we know and what all of the good research and evidence tells us is high quality early learning opportunities not only are essential for children being prepared to start school ready to learn, but it has long term consequences that really do help reduce achievement gaps, help students perform better during their their academic career and make them far more likely to graduate from high school. So the fact that so many of our, of our young children don't have access to those early learning opportunities mean that they are starting school further behind than their peers who have had those experiences and really sets them up for a really long road to hoe in terms of their academic success.
0: And uh, policymakers on some level recognize that because if we look at uh, the different budget proposals that have been laid out, they all try to address Uh, waiting lists for nc pre-k in some way the governor and house budgets um, fully fund uh, essentially the waiting list so that there will no longer be children on the waiting list theoretically and the senate doesn't quite fully fund but it does uh, increase the number of slots available Um, talk about i'm I'm sure that you would say that's a good thing but is it enough Is, is there more that needs to be done
1: So that is a step in the right direction and we would say that is an essential step. Uh, We agree with the um, House budget proposal and the governor's proposal that would eliminate the NC pre-K wait list. But the wait list is not a measure of the number of kids who don't actually have access to those programs. So it's important for us to reduce that wait list but also keep our eye on the bar broader picture and the ball to make sure that we are actually getting more of those kids into those early learning, high quality early learning opportunities in classrooms that will set them up for academic success.
0: So if, um, if the wait list is not reflective of the children who need it, what is what are some other factors that stand in the way of those children either getting access to early childhood education or having the opportunity for it?
1: So we know that there are a number of financial barriers that families often experience in being able to afford those kinds of high quality early learning experiences for their children. We know that there's also a maldistribution of those kinds of classrooms that are available across the state. So we need to make sure that there are enough classroom slots available, that families are able to afford and put their children into those kinds of classrooms, and that we're making sure that there's some kind of equity throughout that process. So kids who are far more likely not to get those learning opportunities, and those are typically low-income kids, are kids who are being able to benefit from those types of supports.
0: And uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, before we went on the air that, you know, when you're talking about uh, children and and data such as this, people tend to talk about education separately from everything else. But when it comes to children and their health, it's kind of all interconnected. And um, there are other aspects of this that you think are particularly important to look at. Um, Tell me about some of those.
1: Well, no, that's an excellent point. So again, a child's Educational success is really reflective of all those different areas of well-being in a child's life being on track to enable them to be ready to learn and to succeed in their academic career. So a child who is sick and is missing critical time in the classroom and instructional time is more likely to fall behind and that's a risk factor for their educational success. A child that is growing up in poverty who may be living in a home where they have food insecurity, which means that there just isn't enough food around for everyone to be able to have a meal, or they don't have access to healthy, nutritious foods, that really supports their growth and development. Again, that's another risk factor in terms of their academic success. If a child is growing up in a home or a community where they are exposed to a abuse, neglect, or community violence. That kind of trauma, again, is a risk factor for educational success. So when we're talking about how well positioned our children are to be successful, not only in the early years of their educational career, but as they graduate from high school and transition to post-secondary educational opportunities. All four of these categories that are represented in the data book are essential for children being best positioned to um, experience educational success.
0: And you had mentioned again before we started this conversation that uh, the economic well-being w- was one of the areas you're we particularly concerned about. Can you talk a little bit about what what these what the data is on that?
1: Yeah the economic well-being category should be a cause for concern for everyone in the state of North Carolina. The rankings show that um, North Carolina ranks 37th overall. Um, When we look at each of those individual measures, we see modest improvement in those individual categories, but North Carolina lags behind the national average in three out of four of those indicators. So what we're seeing is one in four of our kids are growing up in poverty. We have 30% of our kids who live in homes where their parents lack lack access to secure employment. We know that employment is essential for parents to be able to work, to earn a living, to be able to meet their household budgets, and to provide for all the resources that their children need to be able to grow. And we also see that almost a third of our kids are growing up in homes where their family has a high housing cost burden. What that means is basically their family pays more than 30% of their household budget in their mortgage or their rent, their housing expenses. And when housing costs, eat up an increasing proportion of a family's household budget. What that simply means is there's less money to go around to support those other areas where children um, and families really need. So things like um, the family's nutrition can often suffer, um, whether or not children, again, parents are able to put them into high-quality early learning opportunities or enriching kinds of programs that support their academic success, all of that is really affected. So we know that the economic well-being category is not only dragging down our overall ranking in North Carolina, but it is limiting opportunity for kids across the state.
0: So what can be done about that? I mean, when we talk about education, we talk about policy changes that, you know, maybe change the way kids are educated. And there are policy changes, you know, theoretically that could be made to increase economic well-being, but A lot of it has to do with the market and things that aren't necessarily in people's control. So what are some suggestions that you would have?
1: Well, that's actually interesting because there are a number of policy choices and evidence-based public policy solutions that are available to um, the North Carolina General Assembly and our policymakers that would make a measurable difference in outcomes for family economic security and economic well-being for kids and their families. So one of the things that we need is the political will to make the types of decisions that support the economic well-being of families across the state. So one current example that our policymakers are currently debating is whether or not we're going to limit or cut um, access to SNAP benefits. So there's a current proposal that would cut access to SNAP benefits that would mean 51,000 kids across the state would lose their SNAP benefits. We're talking about kids who live in low-income households, whose families are already struggling to make ends meet, and these are families that would lose that critical bump in their budget that helps them put food on their table. So when we're seeing a national report that says North Carolina ranks 37th in the country for economic well-being, the question that communities need to ask their policymakers and that we hope the General Assembly will ask themselves is, is this decision good for kids and families? Does it promote economic opportunity for kids and families? And if it doesn't, then it's a decision that isn't in the best interests of North Carolina today or even in our, our long term in terms of our future prosperity.
0: And so what, what are some other aspects of this that that some of the data points that you think people should be paying particular attention to?
1: So North Carolina ranks 31 or 31st overall in health, um, but there's one particular measure in the health category that is particularly encouraging, and that is our reduction in the percent of children without health insurance. We've essentially cut that in half since 2010, down to 4 percent of children currently lack health insurance coverage. What that means is 96 percent of kids in North Carolina have access to health insurance. And this is significant because we've already talked about that connection earlier between good health and educational outcomes, right? So we know in order for children to be in their best health, they need to have health insurance, which means that not only are they able to see a doctor when they fall ill, but they are far more likely to be getting those preventative well-child checkups on on a proactive basis that help them stay in good health before their health declines um, and they become sick. So that was actually the result of some intentional and deliberate investments. We know that the improvement in children's health insurance coverage is largely attributable to changes that were made through the Affordable Care Act and our public health insurance programs like Medicaid and NC Health Choice. So thanks to those two programs, more of our kids now have health insurance coverage.
0: Um, so I just kind of want to ask you generally, you know, when it comes to politics and policy, do you think enough people in positions of leadership are paying attention to kind of what needs to be done in early years of a person's life, in the childhood years, to set them up to be successful later in life?
1: There's increasing interest in those kinds of preventative investments during the early years that research shows really generates huge dividends and returns, right? So the conversation that we're having today around investments in early care and education, for example, are very different than they were more than a decade ago. And by and large, it's a given in the General Assembly that those types of investments in pre-K and early learning opportunities are important and critical for children's success. But that same principle applies to the other areas that we're seeing in this data book. So for example, in health, we currently have a conversation happening at the federal level about changes to um, our healthcare system that would include changes to Medicaid, so caps and cuts. What that means for us here in North Carolina is if that Medicaid program changes, because that is a critical resource for children's access to health insurance in North Carolina, that means our kids are vulnerable to losing coverage, right? which means if those kids are uninsured, we have that circumstance that we were talking about earlier where they may not be getting those preventative well-child visits, which means that they may be falling ill, where children are having to rely on costly emergency room visits for their health care versus going to see a primary care provider. Those types of divestments from ensuring children's health during the early years are the things that really do create long-term challenges for us as a state, in those individual children's lives, and in the case of the federal health care reform proposals that we're seeing in Congress now, really limiting our future prosperity as a nation.
0: You know, I think for some people, when they hear reports like this, you know, the good stuff they feel good about, the bad stuff they wonder, well, what can I do about it? This is all done at a higher level than anything that I can do. What do What do you tell people?
1: I'd say there's a lot that you can do. Um, we know what works to help improve outcomes for kids. We have reams of good evidence and data that tells us what public policy solutions create, could create a measurable difference in the lives of kids and families. And we as advocates are often having these conversations with policymakers to help lift up that evidence and lift up those policy solutions that research shows works but it's important for communities, for parents, for individual advocates to be having those conversations with their policymakers as well. If not about the evidence around the policy solutions that work, about sharing their individual experiences of what it's like to be a, what it's like to be a parent in North Carolina and to be able to make ends meet and the difference that for example SNAP makes in your household budget. To have a conversation with your congressional delegation about the impact of, you know, some of the decisions that they're currently um, debating and what it could potentially mean for your family if Medicaid program is changed or no longer available for you or your children. And those kinds of conversations between consist- constituents and policymakers are incredibly powerful. In fact, in some ways, far more powerful than those conversations that occur between professional advocates and policymakers because you're in their district and they represent you.
0: It's interesting because I, I have noticed in my time covering the General Assembly, you will often hear anecdotes from uh, lawmakers when they're talking you know, in favor or against particular bills. They do seem to put a lot of weight in the stories they hear from constituents.
1: That's exactly right. So, uh, I'm a person that works with research and data all day and these numbers are incredibly compelling for me. But what we know for the policymaker is that individual story from that person living in their district is far more compelling for them um, and can really help inspire them to take action on these types of evidence-based policy solutions that we need to put in place for our kids and families. So for people across the across the state of North Carolina who are curious what they could be doing, how they could be using this data, we would say have a conversation with your policymaker about the data and and share your lived experience about some of the measures that are here on this page and really help support, you know, advocates and work in partnership with advocates as we really lift up those evidence-based policy solutions that this report suggests we really need to implement in North Carolina.
0: Layla, thanks so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Alex.
0: We've been talking with Layla Bell, Director of Research and Data for NC Child. You can find a link to the report that we've been talking about, the 2017 Kids Count Profile, uh, right above this uh, podcast in the post on our website. And I'm Alex Granados, reporter for Education NC. Thanks for listening.